0: Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just wanna take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. Uh, My name is Dan. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the pastor here. Uh, Welcome to Journey. Uh, Those of you that are uh, worshiping with us online, so glad you're here uh, as well. I talked to a few people this week that I know uh, are quarantining and those type of things. And so, man, we're so blessed to be able to uh, communicate through technology. I was talking to somebody last uh, week and we were saying, uh, we were reminiscing about the 80s. I don't know why, but we were talking about things in the 80s, you know, parachute pants and movies and stuff like that, and I was like, well, you know, 80s were great, except for we could, if you weren't in the building, you you weren't going to get it, you know, like you had to be in the building, and uh, uh, we're we're glad to be able to have this uh, avenue, to be able to share this uh, message, and to be together, even if we can't be in the room. Our hope, though, I'll say this, our hope is that we will continue to make strides to all be together in the room, okay, and so uh, as we approach the fall, we're praying through that, uh, how to better do that, Uh, we know that in front of us, uh, our opportunity for us to build ourselves as a family of God and uh, in in some ways rebuild uh, in in certain dynamics of who we are. And so we want to welcome you into that. Hey, if you see other people that are a part of our church um, that we don't know about that are struggling, please let us know about that. We want to uh, be able to minister to them uh, and and pray for them. Uh, And we're praying, obviously, over school year and all those things coming up. uh, And we're excited about the opportunities of what we get to do. But we're also kind of vigilant and want to make sure that we're doing the right thing. So thank you. Thank you once again for your patience. We uh, we appreciate our medical advisory team that are giving us good advice uh, on how to approach things from that standpoint. Uh, but we are a family of God, and so we want to gather together however we can find ourselves to do that. And uh, as we always do, when we get together on Sundays, it's a special time for us to worship uh, and to open uh, Scripture together. And so we're going to do that today in Exodus chapter nineteen. Exodus nineteen. Uh, we are going through a passage of Scripture this summer. We're, uh, uh, we're basically following along with, uh, the, Uh, the ancient Israelites uh, as they came out of captivity in Egypt, and we've been going on this journey with them. Uh, We're calling the series Dwell because it's all about God creating the people for his name uh, so that they can experience his personal presence. Uh, And this is somewhat of an underlying uh, uh, tenor for the entire uh, scripture from uh, Genesis to Revelation because God, uh, in the very beginning, created us for his presence. He created uh, men and women to be in his image, to share a special relationship with him and to be fixtures within his creations to bestow his glory, to display his glory. Uh, to the world around it. Uh, he placed us with intentionality in that. And we see as Scripture passes on and we get to the end of Scripture, uh, the bookend of Revelation, we see that God, His design ultimately is to return and be permanently present with His people. But we're in the middle of the story. We uh, find ourselves in 2021 somewhere uh, in one of the chapters. Uh, if we turn back a few chapters, we find ourselves in Exodus 19. And uh, this is a, uh, an important event. This is kind of a dense passage, okay, I'll just say that, Uh, and uh, we're going to throw a bunch of Scripture at you this morning and uh, maybe scratch the surface a little bit, okay? Uh, It's always a little confusing to me to say, well, what can I leave out? You know, if you study for several hours on something, you're always like, well, I want to share that too, and I want to share that too, but uh, we can't do everything. But there are some correlations that I want to tie us in today that I think at the end will help us all to take one step closer to who this God is and how He wants us uh, to be in His presence presence. And so uh, I want to share the story with you. This is a, an, an important fixture within the narrative of the Israelites. As a matter of fact, uh, this is a, a reference to count over and over again in the New Testament after Jesus. Uh, and, and so they would have known this story backwards and forward. They would have ingrained the story you're about to hear uh, backwards and forward. They, this would become a reference point to them. It'd be much like uh, if I were to share with you thing, famous things from our nation's history, uh, I wouldn't have to... To get out and go through every detail, you would already readily uh, have an experience, and you would know that. Uh, and so, the people of Israel and later into the New Testament, they they knew this story so well that when they got to it, uh, it becomes a clear reference point for the person of Christ. Uh, but we got to get there somehow. So let's continue to go along the journey with them. And we are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Okay. And so, when you get to Exodus 19, we finally have a uh, Reached Mount Sinai. We'll throw it up here on the screen for you. And this is what happens on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai and after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So uh, we've been waiting for this day. Israel has been waiting for this day. Uh, They have been journeying around and this is the first of two encampments between Egypt and Canaan, okay? So where we find ourselves, they're going to be... Um, They're going to be sitting here for the better part of a year. Okay, so they've been walking around 2 million people. Uh, We've had unbelievable things. There's been plays that have happened, parting of the sea. Uh, There's been water from a rock. There's been battles. There's been all these kind of things. But now we're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is obviously a famous fixture. Uh, Geographically, we're not exactly sure uh, which mountain is Mount Sinai. That's the reference point of exactly where they are. But we do know that they hang out here for about... For the better part of a year. And and so a lot of things are going to happen in this particular instance. And it it ushers in a specific experience with God. We remember that God has continually displayed himself, uh, and the whole narrative started when God showed up to one individual named Moses. uh, And now we see that expanding. Uh, God comes in in fire, uh, a burning bush to Moses. And what we're about to see is that burning bush now extends and that experience. Experience is going to extend to the people of God because God doesn't just want to share himself with one individual, but God is shaping a people for his name. So in order to see that, watch what happens as the story progresses in verse three. Verse three says this, Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. And he said this, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of of Israel. So this is a special conversation. Remember Moses has been getting directives from God. Now he's going to get a message to take, not to Pharaoh, but he's saying, God is telling Moses, I've got a special message that I want you to tell all these people that I have just delivered out, that I've just redeemed from captivity. We've brought them out here. Now, where are we going to go? Who are we going to be? What, what's going to happen in the future and this is a question we all ask right you, you've gotten to hear you're probably already making plans for the week you're playing some of you are making plans for this fall the next year we're always asking what next and so God is about to reveal himself in a very specific way in a thing we call a covenant now this covenant this agreement or this relationship uh, is going to take several chapters to unpack and so I want to let you kind of see if you will the way the next few chapters will uh, uh, materialize because this conversation is not a short conversation. This is a long conversation. I'm going to give you kind of an outline of the next few chapters, uh, and it, it, it forms what's called a chiasm. If, if you've been to, uh, if you studied ancient literature, uh, if you've studied uh, scripture, uh, maybe you've got into some commentary, something like that. A lot of times uh, it, it was a form of writing where they would focus the attention at the middle part, it would be kind of like an arrow pointing to a middle part, and so I've, I've kind of shaped it that way, <clears throat> excuse me, but this shows you the passage layout, you can try to jot it down real quick, <clears throat> excuse me, but basically what happens at the uh, the beginning and the end, they, they mirror each other, and they keep funneling down to the main And so where where we are today, we're in the narrative where the covenant is offered to the people. It's kind of like it's extended. This is kind of like the marriage proposal uh, when when God says, hey, I'm I'm entering into this uh, relationship with you. It's offered in the passage we're looking at, but it's not going to be really kind of materialized until you get into chapter 24 where they accept the covenant. But along the way, what's going to happen is God next week is going to give them the 10 commandments, the Decalogue, and that's going to be his law in general. And then we're going to get more specific laws uh, after that. Uh, Okay. okay? And that's going to find ourselves in chapter 20 through 23. And that's a long list of things. Okay. We're not going to cover every little thing in that passage, but then in the middle of it, what's going to happen is the people are going to fear. And in the middle of that, what God is trying to do is He's trying to create uh, through His offering the covenant, the accepting of the covenant, uh, through the laws and shaping how they are to be- behave and who they're supposed to be. Ultimately, we're going to see then, and when we get to chapter 20, verses 18 through 21 next week, Why that is. What is God actually trying to do with this group of people? Uh, And and so if you can kind of get that in your mind, just know this. We're not going to get through all of it, okay? There's no way to get through all those type of things. But I want you to at least see it. Because these things don't stand alone. These are not uh, really intended. This story is not really intended to be like little uh, episodes or excerpts. It's really been um, designed to be understood as a more robust picture so we can grasp the totality of who God is. So with that in mind, we're just going to focus on A up there today. okay? And we're going to draw some correlations uh, that I think will help us to understand what this covenant is. Is okay what this relationship is. So let's jump back in the passage. I think we're going to jump in at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So this is the first part of the conversation, this is the first part of a covenant now. Uh, I always think it's important when we mention a word like covenant because uh, you're probably not using that word uh, day to day. Uh, You might not have used that word unless you were like... Teaching a you know teaching a Bible study or something like that. uh, Chances are you haven't used the word covenant in a while, and so I always try to do a little synopsis of what I think uh, helps us to grasp what it is. Uh, A covenant is is introducing a relationship. I I call it kind of like I said the marriage proposal. It's a lot like that because when I'm doing a wedding, uh, I'll always explain in the middle of the uh, ceremony to the two individuals that are standing in front of me, "You're entering into a covenant, not a contract. The contract uh, is." A legal agreement between two parties, uh, but it 's distinct from a covenant in that when you enter into a contract when you borrow money for a house or when you uh, enter into a business deal or something of that nature, what ends up happening is you 're actually signing on the dotted line in order to, to the actually the other party's trying to protect themselves from you you're, you're, it 's a protection document so that if you don 't c- follow through. On your end of the bargain then they have recourse to pull out of the relationship and the legal agreement now covenant is different because you're not trying to protect yourself from the other party you are signing your life away to the other party you're giving yourself away so it's not a protection document or it's not a protection relationship or agreement it is uh, it's basically just giving yourself away and so in this Part of the passage, the covenant that's introduced here, what God's actually essentially saying is, He said, "Well, I have brought you to this point, and this is, the, if you can kind of get in an ancient Near Eastern mindset for a second, you can you can kind of see some of the significance of this. Uh, for many of us, our, our concepts of God have been shaped." primarily, perhaps, uh, maybe even in the South, uh, maybe it's getting less so today, but you, you're kind of somewhat indoctrinated and understand, okay, this is kind of who God is and what God's like. Some of it's accurate, some of it's conjecture, uh, but you, you, at least when you think of God, you don't have the comparison that they had. Uh, the comparison they had for these other gods was that their gods were, were not caring Matter of fact, you had to appease these gods. Uh, you, you better appease them the correct way or else they're, they're gonna you know, come down and strike you down. Uh, you had to give them sacrifices in order to earn favor with them. Uh, and they were at war. There wasn't just one God, there was a lot of gods. And so much of what you see happening in God revealing himself to this group of people is God is trying to almost deconstruct their understanding of what gods are like and he's introducing himself as the one true God, that this is what God is like. And so this is God's introduction to them. This is his introduction to the covenant, and he wants them to see who he truly is. And ultimately, what this reveals, just in verse 4 alone, is that who God is, is this Yahweh, this God, this covenant God of Israel, is the one who has carried them on eagle's wings. Now, if you were to travel back, transport uh, yourself all the way back to uh, this time period. Uh, much like it is in, in many areas of the world today, uh, you might have things that would represent God, uh, amulets, uh, icons, those type of things. It, it was not foreign to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to worship this uh, icon or we're going to worship this. Uh, this fixture, as a matter of fact, you might remember when you, even when you get to Acts chapter 17, some of you may remember the story where uh, Paul goes into Athens and he ends up in Athens and he looks around and there are, uh, there's altars to all these gods and there's one, remember what he says, there's one that says, has an in a, uh, inscription on it, that says this is to the uh, to the unknown God uh, and basically that was their way of saying, hey, there's so many gods, we may have missed one, uh, but we want to make sure. If he shows up, we've got him on here. And we can say, oh, no, we were worshiping you. You know, we were worshiping you by this altar, by this thing, by this icon. And so they had this in their mind that when you had a God, you basically carried the God with you. Uh, When you would move into a first century household, uh, even a Jewish household, uh, you would go into what would be, uh, they would have uh, an icon in the middle of the house. And so you can, when people would say something like... um, you know, he and his household came to faith or he and his household were baptized because basically, if you were the patriarch of the house, whatever God you had, everybody in the house had and you would place it in the middle of the house and it would be the fixture of the house. This is the way they work. This is the mindset they have. And so this is distinct in this is that this God is not the God that you carry, but this is the God that carries you that this is the God that is carrying you. And he uses, um, he uses parental language here. Uh, it gets a little lost on us, but he talks about being carried on eagle's wings. This is like a mother bird. He, he likens God to a mother bird who protects her young, which actually harkens all the way back to Genesis when the spirit of God is brooding over the waters like a mother bird over a nest. Uh, and, and, and then the world itself, is birth. There's a lot of this language in because there's something about the maternal or the paternal characteristics uh, of this God that he wants them to see that this is a God, not that you carry, but the one that carries you. Uh, The psalmist would pick this up later in several places. One of my favorites is Psalm 37, verse 23, where it said, The Lord makes firm the steps uh, of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. That this is the God I, that I want to introduce you to. If you're, if you're new to church, if you're, uh, if you're wrestling with faith, if you're, if you're kind of struggling with Christianity even and struggling with the church, uh, I want to reintroduce you to this God, that this is the God that wants to uphold you with his righteous, his good hand. He carries you. This is the mindset of this God. This is God who is being introduced to this group of people that is different than all the foreign gods. And so two million people uh, are walking on this journey. They're camped at the foot of the mountain. Moses goes up and the first thing God says is, I want you to tell them who I am. And the one that I am is I'm the one that's got them here. I carried them out of captivity like a mother bird. I am upholding them right now with my hand. Now, when you dive back into the story in verse four, that's not all he says, though. He says that, I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, there's a whole lot of things to unpack in there, but I think one of the things that often gets missed in, in, in when we read that, when we initially read that, we think, well, it's just because we're, you could almost like think of it like pawns uh, in God's game, but that's really not the relational significance of it. What he's really saying is, I've come to carry you to a place so that we could be together. So that we could be in together's presence, uh, you could walk with me, you could know me, you could be what you were supposed to be from the very beginning in a relational way with the Creator God. It reminds me of what Jesus Himself uh, did in uh, in choosing the disciples. When remember, He went, went went around and He would say, call people to follow Him. And then there were a lot of disciples and then he, it says in Mark chapter 3 that he appointed 12 so that they might be with him. And from that, then they're going to go out and proclaim the gospel, it's going to say, they're going to do all these kind of things. And so purpose is there. But the first thing we often miss is presence. That what God is going to do is he's going to give us all purpose. But purpose with God starts with the presence of God, that God really wants to be with his people. And this is important not to miss because uh, a lot of us become so militant in mindset and pragmatic that we miss the idea of being still and knowing that he's God, that God wants to really know you in a deep way. I don't even know that if many of us, if uh, if we were honest with ourselves and with others, we'd say, well, can you really know God? I don't really know that I can. I really, when you talk about God being relational with us, that's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around, right? But here's what scripture continually teaches, and this is the experience of those that have gone before us, is that God wants to deeply be known and he wants to know you. He's making a way. He's telling Moses in this instance, we see it in the person of Jesus, he's making a way for you to know this God. And some of you need to be reintroduced to him. Uh, some of us, we need, to be, uh, uh, we need to have some of the blinders pulled back so we can see who He truly is. Because when we come into His presence, there's, there's, I think He's going to list about three things right away that uh, are going to be kind of the benefits of the ramifications of that uh, in His mind. This is in God's own words. The first thing He's going to say is going to happen when you're in His presence. If you go on to the next slide, He's going to say that we have a divine privilege In Exodus 19.5, he says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Out of all the nations, he says, you're going to be my treasured possession. Now, I don't know what your treasured uh, possession is. For some of you, it might be your golf clubs uh, or a shotgun. For some of you, it might be a book. Um, uh, Chances are you've got something that uh, doesn't really have a price on it. You know, it's not one of those things that uh, is really, it's worth a lot because it's worth a lot you know, financially, it's worth a lot because of the meaning and the care that it that it conveys. I, I've got uh, a cardboard box in my closet, and uh, there's nothing in there that any of you would pay uh, me for. Like, I couldn't sell it at a garage sale; nobody would buy any of it. But when I open the box, I look in the box, and there's things in there that are treasured possessions. There are things that have stood the test of time with me. They they go back to when I was a child. They go back to certain pivotal moments in my life, there is an affection that's attached to certain elements or certain things that goes deeper than the monetary value of those things. And that's the way that God is with us. If you think about it, like, um, you know, who we are uh, as individuals, you say like, well, there's uh, 7.2 billion people on the planet. What makes you special? What makes you valuable? Well, what makes you valuable is not who you are or where you're from. It is that relational connection with God. It's what God considers you to be. He considers you a treasured possession. And if you, once again, get in an ancient mindset, this would have been a totally foreign concept with God, that God would treasure, these individuals would treasure humans And I think it's probably equally so today where we would look at this God and it's like, well, why would God treasure us? God has to reveal himself. This is who he is. This is the God who cares so deeply about you that he calls you his treasured possession. And so that's a divine privilege. That's not something that we can earn. That's not something that we deserve, but that's something that God bestows on us because of his affection to us. But that's not all that comes from being in his presence. The other thing is a divine calling. Although the whole earth is mine, he would say, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. He says, you're going to be for me a kingdom of priests. Now, what's a priest? A priest is someone that intercedes and builds a bridge. It's an easy way to think about it between God and man. It's a mediator. It's someone that said, hey, if I'm going to go to God, I'm going to go through a priest. And so this calling is saying, hey, you're a treasured possession, but you have a purpose. And a lot of us want to enjoy God for ourselves. But right at the beginning of the relationship, God reveals that part of who you are in his presence is to be a bridge builder so that other people can go to God through you. That he places the nation of Israel in a position where they're not special because they're special and everybody else is not. They're special because they have a special calling to facilitate everybody else being in God's presence just like they are. And so when you go to work, when you go to school this fall, when you're on uh, the sports field or in the locker room, when you're at, the ho- at your house or wherever you find yourself in your neighborhood, you are not just enjoying God for yourself. Your role is to be a bridge builder to the people in your sphere so that they can know this God too. That's what you were designed for. That's what you were created for. Uh, Each one of us, in our own way, by being in the presence of God, being in a relationship with God, what God wants to do is he wants to use you as a bridge to bring other people to know him. This is what the people of God have always been designed to be. Not a group of people that... um, you know, erect walls around them or force, uh, you know, a uh, force field around us. It's not where we're sitting here and, and throwing pot shots at the culture. We're supposed to go out of the walls of this place and build bridges so that people can know God, experience God, and know what it's like to be in His presence just like you do. And from that, don't you see? I mean, this presence has major ramifications. You know who you are, your identity. You know what you're supposed to do, you're a priest. But then also, you know how you are to look. And that's the last thing he unpacks is a divine character. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're supposed to be a holy nation. Uh, A holy nation, what is that? Well, that doesn't mean the United States of America is a holy nation. It doesn't matter. I mean, uh, that wasn't even in the cards back then. They didn't even know that this this place would be here. A holy nation is a people that are set apart by a distinct relationship with God. That this is not geographic. This is not time-bound. This is what it's like to be a people that have been redeemed by God to be in a special relationship with God, a holy nation, a distinct, a unique nation that is set apart. Now, with that comes, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to be the people of God? Well, that's always been, uh, I, I guess, culturally speaking, it's always been a difficult proposition to figure out exactly what that looks like in each culture. But what it it does, ultimately, if you want to know what that looks like to be a holy nation, we're going to find it in just a second, it means how do you look like the characteristics and the attributes of the God who brought you into relationship with himself? It's not trying to, you know, pay down payments on a relationship with God. It's saying I've entered into a relationship of God, with God, and so what does my life then look like? It has certainly moral ramifications, it has financial ramifications, it has uh, internal intellectual motiv- uh, motivations and connotations to it. Every level of ourselves is saying we are created to be distinct, to look different. And so you see, can't you, just in those three things, right? You, you can see that you have an identity through this presence with God. You've got a purpose and you've got a character. You, this is what you're supposed to look like. and. I think that if we could just kind of zero in on those three things, a lot of things that we get tripped up on in our culture, a lot of the other things that it seems like the church becomes about and Christianity becomes about, I I think it would kind of clear the deck, you know? I think it would actually refocus us to say, well, if we just focus on those three things alone, what would our life look like? What would our purpose look like as a people of God, as, as church, as individuals, as families? What would it look like? And so this is the initiation. This is the invitation to a covenant. This is what it's looked like for God to enter into a relationship with a sinful and broken people. But there's a problem. The problem is, is that God is perfect and obviously humans are not. And so we've got this scene of a message that God is giving to the people. But there's a situation here. There's a situation because there is a disconnect between who this God is and who he's created them to be. And that's what you see play out in the rest of this narrative. Follow along and let's see where the, how the problem gets resolved. So Moses went back and he summoned the elders of the people and he set before them all the words of the Lord that uh, he had commanded them to speak. And the people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. Now, first of all, do y'all think that's going to be true? No, that's not going to be true. Uh, It's like all those promises you made to God, you know, whenever, like, if you get me out of this, God, you know, I'm going to, I promise I'm going to do it, you know, whatever. Uh, We always say that, but they don't fall through and none of us do either. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. And then Moses told the Lord what the people... Had said, Let's follow along with the story. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. So he says consecrate. The word consecrate means to set apart, to purify. Uh, And so if they're going to be in a relationship with a holy and perfect God, he's telling them, listen, you've got to prepare yourself. You've got to get ready. You've got to clean yourself up because there is this disconnect. And we're about to figure out uh, in the story itself how powerful and pronounced this distance between God as a holy and righteous God and a sinful broken people. How far that is. And what is it going to cause? What kind of problem is this going to cause? Because God has an intent for you. God has a purpose for you. God has a character for you. But there is a problem. There is a big problem with you, and there's a big problem with me, and there was a big problem with the Israelites, which is highlighted by their false promises. We're going to do everything that, you pro- that you've told us to do. We're going we're to hold to our end of the covenant, and we all know if you read any scripture, that that is just not true. And we have to assume that if God is omnipotent, if he's omniscient, if he's omnipresent, that he knows that too. He knows the future, doesn't he? Before they give their answer, he already knows what they're gonna say and he knows whether or not they're going to do what they said they're going to do. And so they're at the foot of the mountain and he says, well, here's what we're going to do. I'm gonna come down in a dense cloud I want you to tell them to purify themselves. Get everything ready. And when I say everything, that means everything. Because if you go on to the next verse, it shows us. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch a foot on it. For whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid upon them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Now, this is a problem. Um, God's going to come down in a mountain, but he's going to set a perimeter around the mountain so that if you cross the line... If you get too close to Him, then what's the problem going to be? Well, the problem is going to be you're going to be ignited by the presence of God. Now, we have a problem with this. Can we just be honest? Uh, our American sensibilities have a really hard time grasping this type of situation. Because what we, the way we view it is we, we view it and say, like, well, it seems like God's pretty intolerant. If He knows that they're going to follow, you know, fall on their face when they make these promises, if he knows that they're not holy and he's telling them to consecrate themselves, well, what, what's the deal here? God, is, is it just impossible to please this God? And we get this picture of God and honestly, we get mad at God sometimes because we can't understand that. It doesn't seem to fit inside our rationale and our understanding of the way the world works. And so who is this God? You just said you carried us and now you're wanting to kill us? What, what kind of God is this. Well, this unpacks the attributes the core of who this God is. This God, what we're going to use the word is a biblical word, it's it's just holy. That this God is holy. The word holy means that he is unique and special. That means that he is completely other. It carries with it the idea of just power that he is the source of all life. And he's also the sustainer of life. Uh, You read this in Genesis, don't you? When he steps out into the void, into the chaos, and he speaks. And whatever he says has creative power. That, That in itself is pure, unadulterated, unmitigated power. But then he's also the sustainer of life. The writer of Hebrews will say that he holds up everything by the power of his word. That means the fact that you were able today to come in here because gravity exists. You know what? Uh, why that is? is because God sustains it as so. That this is the God that began it. This is the God that continues it. Uh, he is the author, he's the finisher, that this is this God, this is who he is. But it also speaks of his purity. It means that everything that's beautiful, Everything that's right and everything that's good exists at its core in who this God is. This is who this God is. He is pure, unmitigated power, and he's pure, unmitigated purity. And, and we've got something similar to that uh, just in our day-to-day life. We have something unique. We have something that's very powerful, and we have something that's very beautiful. This is the thing that uh, every day, uh, right now, it's coming up, and it's way too hot outside right now, okay? Uh, It's August. We had a great week last week. Thank God for a a little bit of cooler weather, Uh, but it's hot, right? Now, the funny thing about this sun is you could say within our solar system, it's holy, okay? It's not God, but... From an illustrative standpoint, you can see that this thing is unique, it's special, and it is pure energy, it's pure power, Uh, so much so that our our solar system within our galaxy, within the vast universe of galaxies, that we are sustained by the power of this sun. Uh, If this sun were to implode or explode, what would happen to us? We would be gone in an instant uh the fact that <clears throat> the fact that plants grow the fact that uh, uh we are exactly the pl- in, in the place where we spin around it because of the gravitational pull of the sun that keeps us perfectly balanced it is at the center of our universe and it is the sustainer and the source of our life it's special it's holy it's it's unique but it's also beautiful but you can't stare at it right it is so beautiful uh, matter of fact, when you look at a sunset, uh, when you see a sunrise, some of you, when you get up in the morning, some of you ought to get up early enough to see it. You know, it, it comes up, it's beautiful. But you can't stare at it, can you? What will happen if you stare at it? Uh, it's going to burn your retinas. It, it's going to blind you. Matter of fact, it being 93 million miles away, if you get just a little bit closer to it, you're going to get burned. Matter of fact, if you stand out in the sun long enough, right here in Jonesboro, Arkansas, you're going to come back with a sunburn. You're going to get hurt. Um, A few years ago, i say several years ago, when the girls were really small, when our two oldest, we only had our two oldest, and we went, uh, uh, we traipsed down to Florida, Rock and I with the kids. We were doing a wedding. Uh, I was the best man in the wedding, and uh, we went down, sat on the beach, and, you know, we put sunscreen on, Okay, and uh, we put like one coat of sunscreen on, you know, and it was probably like thirty or something, you know, uh, SPF thirty. And we sit out there, but we did not reapply the sunscreen, and we didn't know that we were getting burnt until it was way too late. Um, We went out on the beach the day uh, of the rehearsal. And we got so, everybody in the family was so burnt. Veronica was under a, 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 one of those umbrella, beach umbrellas, you know, and her legs were setting out and she got blisters on her shins. Uh, I was just from, you know, head to toe, I was just beat red, which was really funny because I was, we, we were wearing, you know, it was a beach wedding. And so we were wearing white shirts and like linen pants, you know, that whole thing back in the, back in the day. And uh, in the wedding pictures, it's me with this white shirt and I am glowing like glowing red in this thing. And I was so miserable. I was so miserable. I, I was supposed to do a toast uh, at the reception. And I think I, was, I think I was something like, hey man, best of luck. And then I was out of there because I was so miserable. I was just so miserable being there. Uh, and here's what happened. I, I did not think about the power of the sun. Uh, it was beautiful on the beach but being just a little bit closer. I mean, just a few hours drive, just getting that much closer made the sun that much more powerful. Those of you that have traveled around the equator, you know this, that that sun is intense. And here's the thing. Does that mean that the sun is intolerant? Does that mean that the sun is angry? Does that mean that the sun is just being a jerk to all of us? No, it is in its, in, you know, deep within its core of who it is, its identity is power. In its identity is purity. And nobody argues with that. And when we look at God, what we're looking at is we're looking at unmitigated power, unmitigated purity. And so what does God do in his grace? He establishes a perimeter and says, I don't want you to be extinguished by my beauty. I don't want you to be extinguished by my power. And so within this picture, you're not seeing God's anger. You're seeing God's grace because God in his essence of who he is, is pure holiness. It's what the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6 said when he saw a vision of God. He said he saw him high and lifted up and he saw that the angels were circling his throne and they were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what was his response? Well, if you read it, you'll see his response was he falls down to his face and he says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Because there's something about being in the presence of that much power and that much purity that gives you an understanding and a deep sense of who you really are. Your weakness, your frailty, your brokenness, your sinfulness. And so for us to recapture the essence of this is who this God is that carries us, that he calls us his treasured possession, that in his grace, he establishes a perimeter perimeter around his presence so that he can make a way for us to be in his presence where we would not just be ignited by his power and his purity. So as the story goes... Um, the story, fast forwards, we'll read it real quick. On the morning of the third day, there was a thund- there were thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and very loud trumpet blasts and everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke builded up from it like a smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Let's continue on verse 20. The Lord descended to the top of the mountain of Mount Sinai, excuse me, and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord. And many of them perish, even the priests who... Approach the Lord, must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Let's finish it out. Verse 23, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priest and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or He will break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. So what you see here is, I, I believe, I believe what the writer is trying to convey is uh, there's two ways to look at. It. Let me say it this way: there's two ways to look at it. One is that God is so angry that He's going to come down in His righteous anger and extinguish everybody which I don't really hold to. I think what's happening is what I just explained. I think that he is trying to protect them from himself because of his holiness and, and their, their brokenness. So I think that this is a message of grace over and over again because it says that he wants them to go down. Moses says, He says to Moses, go down and tell them, don't do this, don't come up here. Because Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai is a meeting with the presence of God that... When God comes down in is a consuming fire onto the mountain, that God is desperate in his desire, not his need, his desire to be with his people. And it makes no sense that God would come and try to extinguish them. He wants to protect them. Why? Because he wants to be with them. But we're left with a problem because we all know that they were not going to follow through. The Israelites were not going to follow through on their covenant. That a a momentary consecration, a a momentary cleaning yourself up, sprucing yourself up for a church service, putting on your Sunday best, whatever you want to say, your best acts are short-lived. And so the meeting with God in the presence of God where you're not permanently consecrated and set apart is a problem. And I wanna say this because I wanna finish with an instruction that I think the New Testament gives us because some of us are trying to consecrate ourselves to God with momentary acts of consecration to protect ourselves from God's anger. What God wants to do is he wants to offer you a, a meeting with the presence of God, his power and his purity where you can have a permanent consecration where you can enter into his presence with joy and without fear. The people were terrified. Remember what I said at the outset that the people uh, of this day, the, the, the Jews, would grow up knowing this story. I mean, it, it, it sticks with you a little bit. And so the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, he picks up on this cue. And he introduces the people of God in the, in the early church to this situation, but through a new lens. And I just wanna read it, make a couple of points, draw it to a close. You've not come to a mountain that that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. He reminds them of the story. They would have been, oh, yeah, I know Exodus 19. They didn't have chapter verses, but they knew the story. And then the writer Hebrews says this But you have come to Mount Zion, a different mountain. You've come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the churches of the fir- to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of r- the righteous made perfect, holy, permanent consecration. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of of Abel, He goes on to say this, "'See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. "'If they did not escape when they refused him "'who warned them on earth, how much less will we "'if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? "'At that time his voice shook the earth, "'but now he has promised once more I will speak "'not only the earth but also the heavens.'" The words once more indicating removing of what can be shaken, that is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. You see, this story is a story of two different mountains. Mount Zion, the place where God is eager in his desire to be with his people but the perimeter has been established to protect us from his power and his purity because our momentary acts of consecration are not enough. We need God with a new covenant to come in and to establish a perfect, enduring way for us to be in his presence permanently. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, doesn't he? He says, be careful not to refuse this way. And I think there's a soberness to that to understand that we're all going to stand before a holy God, aren't we? At the end of all things, at the end of all things, at the end of your life and mine, it bears it to be true that you are going to stand on one mountain or the other. You're gonna either stand on the place of terror and dread, not because of God's meanness or his anger, but because of his purity and his power or you're gonna stand on Mount Zion, the place where God made a new covenant and made a new way that's a permanent way. And I think there's a message here for us um, within the church, those of us that have become so comfortable and complacent with just saying, well, if I just go to church, if I just give some money, if I just do some good things, I think God's happy with me. You know, if you check on a survey, yes, I'm a Christian, Like. God wants us to be careful. Why? Because he wants us to be in his presence. Hebrews 12 finishes it this way, and then we're gonna finish up. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably uh, in reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We come to him because he's a consuming fire. And just like that picture, I think we've got it. I think we would all just agree that's a consuming fire nobody's vacationing there (laughs) you know but the sun is good the sun is the source of life but if you want to get close to the sun you got to have a way and what you could not do physically do you think that you could do that spiritually that you could get that close to god in all of his holiness without the new covenant of Jesus. And so the calling is to become what God wants you to become. It's what Peter said. This is the last verse, I promise. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light the same fire and the same light that can consume can also be wonderful. You can go before the same power and the same purity and declare praises and a joyful assembly in, in, without terror and without fear because God has made a way. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. My question to you is really simply this Have you made this about anything except the power and the purity of the one holy God that desperately desires, beyond reason to me, wants to be in your presence and mine, so much so that he came himself and he endured the consuming fire of his power so that he could offer you, through his mercy, a better way? I would love it if you'd bow your head and, and pray with me as we finish up. First thing I wanna say is what the writer of Hebrews says when he said, uh, be careful not to refuse him. Be careful not to refuse him. Not because he's out to get you, but because he wants to protect you from yourself. And so the question for you, I think, personally is, have Have you come before this God in any other way other than the path that he has designed, which is himself, the person of Jesus? If you've made it about anything else, if you've made it about coming to church, being a good this or that, if you made it about anything other than that, would you just now just confess that to God? Just say to God, God, I've put that in front of you. I've made that the way and you're the only way. Would you call out to him today and thank him with praises for making a way through Jesus? If you do that, he promises that he'll meet you in this spot. This is what he's been after from that story and before it till now. He wants to meet with you and he wants to be in your presence. If you'll confess that to him right now. Has your church experience become that? Has your church experience become about anything else than the person of Jesus and the worship of him? Would you now confess that to him and set those aside and return back to him? Would you now receive the identity, the character and the calling that he's placed on you? Father, you've heard the prayers of individuals in this room. You alone have the ability and your power to hear every thought. You meet us all exactly where we are. Only you can do that, God. Lord, we have uh, had a lot of gods that we've tried to carry around with us. You're the only God that has carried us. And so we come before you today, not just as individuals, but as your people. We ask you, God, to make us in to a holy nation. Help us to receive our, our place as being treasured by you. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us to be priests that would go out into the world, all of us, men and women and young and old, where we would go and proclaim the goodness and display the gospel in our conduct. Our desire is that there would be nothing else between us and you, that it would just be you. And so we give ourselves completely to that. Thank you for your mercy. It's in your name that we pray.